Okay, so last week uh, we looked at the natural cycle of growth and what we should each experience as both we physically grow and spiritually grow. Paul used a physical example of eating food, of moving from being hand-fed milk uh, and progressively moving to feeding ourselves meat. And he used that as an example as our life journey with Christ through the Spirit working within us. It's a process. And it has its core foundation centered around our ability to submit to the authority of God and allow the Spirit to have its work with inside of us. Now, this is why I've chosen uh, the verses that we are memorizing, is because we have to be able to submit to God's Spirit working within us. Uh, if you would say it with me, it says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And that comes from 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with the book of 1 Corinthians, but when someone mentions this book, I typically jump all the way to the end, to the 13th chapter, which is typically known as the love chapter. Uh, the love chapter is where Paul hammers in that we can say and do many things in this life, but if they're not centered around or flowing out of a deep, deep desire of godly love, then all of our efforts, he says, are worthless. Today, we're actually going to be starting in chapter 5. We're going to be looking at 5 and 6, which in all reality feels miles away from the love chapter. In fact, the beginning words of this chapter in chapter 5 feel anything but love. I'm actually going to put these ones up on the screen. 5.1 says this. It says, It is actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. So Paul is actually going to continue on to address the church's response, but I find this and the next few chapters actually incredibly lightening, considering today's popular culture and the acceptance movement that we're seeing across America as a whole. Today, if you don't accept people as they have decided to be, you are labeled a bigot. You are insensitive and out of touch with reality. American culture today, which is driven by the movie and entertainment industry, will tell you that if you take a stand that tells a person that they are wrong for any reason, that you are a horrible person. And I'm here to tell you that the exact opposite is true. That if you don't tell others the truth, that if you don't love them enough to tell them and point them to the truth, to the one who did love them enough to die for them, then we have failed in our calling as Christians. Today, the title of our sermon is In Sincerity and Truth. And we're going to be learning lessons from church discipline. We're going to be looking at what Paul does. And we're going to be taking some examples away and start to learn a little bit from where he's going. Now, in preparation for today's message, I was reading a bunch of other passages. I was doing some digging. And I ran across a couple of recent articles that somebody else had said about this book. He was discussing applying correctly and incorrectly uh, the instructions that are found here, as unfortunately many churches have incorrectly applied these principles and uh, have failed in this area. And so he's kind of going back and forth because there's no real, uh, no rear, uh, wow, there's no rear, uh, real clear cut what to do in each and every single situation. We have to take each instance individually when we are approaching discipline and instruction 
we have to figure out the church's stance, the church's reaction, and we have to figure out how this is applying in our decision-making. The article actually had this to say of the church in Corinth. He says, at a glance, through the pages of 1 Corinthians, it demonstrates that the church at Corinth shared in this experience of a mixed church. They had factional pride, social disparity, sexual immorality, legal disputes, idolatry, disregard for others, misdirected spiritual gifts, disorder in worship, and unorthodox views of the resurrection. This church, it had problems. We can think that our church has problems, but this one, it was bad. They, they had a ton of problems. They needed help. And I think we can learn from Paul's instructions here and from his heart. Now, today we're going to be covering two areas. We're going to be deep diving into the second one a little bit more. First, it's our reaction to sin. The first one we're going to be looking at is our reaction to sin. And then the second is, do you not know? Which actually comes from Paul's own words. He's actually going to repeat that six times in chapter six. And we'll be looking at that. So first, our reaction to sin. Probably one of the most interesting things that I actually get out of this chapter in chapter 5 is that there is a man who has sin problems. Everybody knows about his sin problems. Everybody inside the church and everybody outside the church all know about his problems. But Paul never once addresses the man in his sin problem directly. Not once. However, he addresses the church as a whole. So if you'll open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to check it out in verse 2. I'll put this one up on the screen, and then we're actually, the next set are going to be within your Bible as well. But I can read it here. It says, And you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. That's verse 2. Did you notice Paul's first words here in verse 2? And you are puffed up. It's kind of an interesting phrase, you are puffed up. Apparently the church, instead of disciplining the man, decided that they were going to shout it from the rooftops that they were... Um, a tolerant bunch of people, that they were accepting of this man and that they were loving of everything that he was doing. After all, they were showing the man and their community love and tolerance by their actions, right? Last sermon and last chapter, Paul just got done saying that we are not to judge one another, that the Lord is supposed to be our judge. Now, am I the only one that feels that this kind of comes off as a contradiction compared to the last chapter? Last chapter, he said, don't judge anybody, and now all of a sudden, he's judging somebody. So what's up with Paul? Why is he going back and forth? But if you don't feel like this is a contradiction yet, wait till we get to chapter 6, which is a complete chapter centered around judgment and Christian judgment specifically. But there's a key point that I also made last week that's crucial for our understanding in these two chapters in this issue as we attempt to figure out what is good and what is not. I said last week that the crucial difference between judging one another and calling men and one up to judging one another and calling men and women up to God's standards. Here, you're going to find that Paul is upset with the church because they have not called one another up to God's standards. They have not called one another up to God's clear living standards. These are the God's standards that God himself expects believers to be following. Paul's going to continue on with his point starting in verse 6, and we'll read through 8. 6 through 8, it says this. He's talking to the church. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that even a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 
So Paul, in previous verses, has told the congregation to toss the man out. Okay, we actually kind of skipped over some of that part, but he said toss the man out. Because, not because his sin was so severe, which is interesting. It's not because his sin was so severe, because in God's eyes, all sin was equal. It's all sin, regardless of what it is. He counts all sin equal. But in fact, that the light of the man was clearly unrepentant in his sin. It wasn't the severity of the sin. It was the fact that the man was unrepentant in his sin. This is why Paul has instructed them to toss the man out. Now, have you ever heard your mom or grandma say it only takes one bad apple? When apples and many other types of produce are stored together, whether it's in a bag or in a bin, when one spoils, what happens to the rest? They quickly turn as well because the one has spoiled, because of their close proximity. My mom would always tell me that there's one bad apple, and so I had to actually separate myself from the other so that I would not become spoiled as well. We go downhill faster because someone who is in our presence has not been removed quickly. Paul takes this one step further as sin and leaven are constant visual references both in the Old Testament and the New Testament of of sin. You can take an apple out of the bag if it goes bad, but what do you do with leaven inside of bread? You can't take it out. You can't separate it. You actually have to toss the whole thing out. You have to start all over new. And that's Paul's point. He's saying start over, start new. Paul is saying that the old nature has to be thrown and the door has to be closed on its way out so that you never go back to it. He's saying get rid of the old nature. Now, we have a new calling in life in Christ. He said, and you actually read it here in verse 8, he said, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This man was to be removed from the congregation because he was completely unrepentant in his sin. Not only was he unrepentant, but he was being flagrantly tolerated within the church. The church was being like, okay, that's fine. We're, you know, we're, we're doing a good job. And they were actually using this as a circumstance where they were saying to the community, look how loving we are. And it was actually ruining the church's reputation. It was as if they were saying to the lost world around them, the church was saying to the lost world around them, that Jesus died for our sins. So come, join us on Sunday and sin away. You can do no wrong with us. Let's celebrate our freedom and sin together. But did Christ die so that we could sin freely? What would have been the point of his death? If we were to be free and to sin, why would he die? Why did he die? Our unrepentant hearts would make void the gift that he has given us in new life. Paul even actually repeats this message in the book of Romans, which he writes two years later. He pens these words in the book of Romans. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? You see, the core foundation of the church is not the acceptance of sin, but the admittance of it. The core foundation of the church is not the acceptance of sin, but the admittance of it. And by the acceptance of the new life offered by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us. It's a complete and total 180 that we once were. So, our second point today, our second point today, which is our bigger point. At the end of chapter 5, leading into the entirety of chapter 6, with this discussion has now been about immorality and how it must be judged within the church. He's talking about immorality and how it must be judged within the church. Paul begins the discussion by separating those who are not saved and those who are saved. He says this, pick it up with me in verses 12 through 13. Verses 12 through 13 of chapter 6. Oops, sorry, chapter 5. 
We're still in chapter 5. Sorry, that's my fault. But what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. The issue here is do we hold those who don't believe in Christ to his standards? Or do we judge them the same way that we judge followers of Christ? The answer is no. We actually can't, nor should we attempt to judge the unsaved. This is judging, remind you. Judge the unsaved by a standard that they have not committed to following. We should not judge people by a standard that they have not committed to following. We are called to tell the truth. We are called to tell the truth. But not to pass judgment when they don't live up to a standard that they haven't committed to following. There's a difference. Now, when we speak of salvation, I often mention that Christ has saved you. What he has saved you from wasn't just for yesterday, wasn't just for today, but it's every day forward, the rest of your life, all the way into eternity. Christ's salvation is working in you to change who you are at your core for the rest of your life, all the way into eternity. It affects everything that you do. Now, have you ever used a camera with a zoom future? My smartphone has uh, multiple cameras. It's got three of them. And uh, when I've got this scroll wheel, and maybe if you've got an old click and point camera or something, you can zoom in nice and good. Now, Paul is actually going to be using this phrase to actually start a little bit further out, and he's slowly going to zoom in every single time. So every time he says this phrase that we're going to be looking at today, he's going to be zooming in closer and closer to the main point that he's trying to get at. So this is the idea that he has. Paul grabs onto this eternal picture idea, thinking of eternity. Okay, I'm going to call it the big picture here. And by using this phrase, do you not know, he's going to click in closer, point by point. So a broad overview, and I'll actually have these on the screen as we're going through them, is these six different areas of the do you not know. So we're going to work through each of them. He starts off chapter 6 by saying, Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Now, this one is kind of worded a little bit tough. And there's a couple of wordings within this chapter that are a little bit tough. And I don't normally use the message translation. I think that it is a poor translation uh, when you're trying to actually understand Bible study. But I think in this instance, it actually nails this one on the head because it re-paraphrases. It's not an actual uh, study as transition. But the message actually says this in 6.1. It says, how dare you take each other to court? When do you think that you have been wronged? Does it make any sense to go to a court that knows nothing of God's ways instead of a family of Christians? The idea that Paul here is trying to go towards is soon fleshed out. As the question he raises is really, why can't the church figure out a way to sort these things out within its own walls? Why can't the church actually figure out how to solve its own disputes instead of having to call into the help of people who don't even believe in God? Because what was happening is these people were getting angry at each other and they were bringing each other to the the public courts. The public courts didn't believe in God. They didn't have God's standards. And they were making a mockery of themselves because they kept giving themselves these lawsuits because they couldn't figure out a way to internally solve these conflicts. So then he says his first, do you not know? So this is do you not know number one. And he says the saints will judge the world. Do you not know the saints will judge the world? That comes from verse two. What he's saying is that your life now is a proving ground for your life to come after the death of this body. Your life now is actually a proving ground for the life to come after the death of this body. We know from Scripture that when God judges the world, we will be present and we're going to give testimony, like an expert witness. God will actually call you up when he is judging the world. So the idea here is we actually have this out further in Revelation, and if you ever have an interesting question, I can, I can talk to you more about it. 
But God's actually going to call us up when he is judging a person for what they have done and what they have not accepted, that those who don't believe in him. Uh, and he's going to call us up and he's going to say, okay, Jacob, uh, what did you say to him on this day? Or what didn't you say? Because what's going to happen is we're going to stand before God and we're going to tell people of what we said and what we did for them to point them to Christ or what we didn't do when God told us to. That's actually what's going to happen is we're going to stand there and he's going to have us there helping us to direct them, to show them that he was there so that people are not without excuse because people are going to get to heaven and they're going to be judged in front of God and they're going to say, well, I didn't know. Nobody was sent. And God's going to say, yes, I sent somebody. I sent them, and he's going to call us up, and we're going to have to give our testimony. Now, Paul then makes his argument, and he takes it one step further. So he goes from judging the world, as we'll be there part of it, and he actually goes into the next verse. In verse 3, he says, we shall judge angels. So not only will we judge those who didn't accept Christ, the world, but we're also going to be judging angels. Now, there's not as much on this. If it wasn't enough that we will eventually help judge humanity, apparently God will have us included in the angel's judgment. Now, these are the angels that chose to follow Satan in his rebellion. So we're actually going to be part. I don't know exactly what this looks like. The Bible isn't very clear. But Paul essentially is saying, if one day we're going to pass judgment on all of earth and all of the angels, then in some way we should certainly be able to make these same critical choices of decision-making here and now. That's his point. He's saying, look, we're going to one day do these huge tasks, and we're going to have to make these incredibly important decisions that are eternal decisions in all of these cases. We should be able to make decisions now that affect outcomes. And that's where he's getting at. So the third repeating of this phrase is actually in verse 9. He says, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, which is something that should sound obvious in verse 9. He goes on and says, don't be deceived. And what he's trying to tell us is that those who have said that they have accepted Christ but are completely unrepentant in their sin, will not turn away from it. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying, if you have accepted Christ, but are completely unrepentant in your sin, and you're not turning away from your sin, your actions betray your hearts, so your mouth becomes void. And what he's saying is you haven't actually accepted Christ. You've given Christ lip service, but not given him your heart. And this is when Jesus says, you know what, I never knew you, turn away from me. Because people will say, I accepted Christ to other people, but in their heart, they actually don't give it over. And God wants our heart. And our actions betray our words because that's where our heart actually is at. He then actually goes and he lists out some major sins. I actually use the New Living on this one um, because I like the way it worded it. I don't often use a lot of other translations. These are the only two. Other than that, I'm going to be New King James. But he says this in uh, 9 through 10. He says, those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols, commit adultery, those who are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality, who are thieves or greedy people, drunkards, who are abusive, cheap people. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. The real kicker of this entire verse actually comes in verse 11. Pick up your Bibles and look at chapter 6, verse 11, and read it with me. Chapter 6, verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The kicker is that he says some of you that are listening to this letter right now were once in the position of that list of people that was just listed. Some of you were there. You should know what that lifestyle leads to because you were once in that same exact position. You were headed down a path 
And you couldn't turn away from it, but you were sanctified by Christ. You were destined for death and destruction, but the Spirit of God intervened. You were changed because God chose to follow your response. He changed your life for the difference that you can now see and feel throughout the rest of your life. The fourth time that we see Paul saying this, uh, do you not know, is in verse 15. He says, your bodies are members of Christ. So he's clicking in one more time. So he goes from judging the world to judging angels to saying that those who believe uh, will, um, those who are unrighteous that don't believe, that won't allow their hearts to change, they won't inherit the kingdom. And then he goes into believers. Now he's actually going into believers. Um, And he says, in other places, Paul will say that you're no longer your own. You have given your body to Christ and now you know what his will is. And if you know God, and you actually have a relationship with him, he gets to be the one in the driver's seat. God gets to be the one in the driver's seat. The three verses back in verse 12, he says that all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. And what he's trying to say is, though I am free to do many things under the freedom that I have in Christ, though the government allows us to do many things today, they are legalizing just about absolutely everything. Just because it is lawful does not mean it is spiritually helpful. And just because one person on this side of the room can do it and it won't affect them and drive them towards sin doesn't mean somebody on this side can't. So we each have a balance because God made us different and we have different temptation points. While sin is sin, there are freedoms that some of us can enjoy and some of us can't enjoy because of who we are in our makeup and what it drives us to do. And this is what he's saying is that we have many liberties in Christ, but not all of them are healthy or helpful to each and every single one of us. So his fifth time, he says this. His fifth time, he says, he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her. Well, that seems to come out of nowhere. I mean, what? why? Did you not know? So he just got done saying that we belong to Christ. But in his day, prostitution was running rampant even within the church. In fact, actually, it was okay to involve yourself in religious prostitution. Uh, People were going behind their backs and their spouses, and society had legalized pretty much any behavior that you wanted to pursue. Starting to found a little bit familiar to America. Here, Paul redirects the believer to a foundation concept of marriage, which God instituted for the believer. Just had a marriage here yesterday. God instituted marriage. God's the one, not the government. God came up with this idea. Continuing in verse 16 and 17, he says these words, 16 and 17 of chapter 6. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Why is the patriarchal family unit under attack today? Because God identifies himself as the father. And if we can undermine what a father is and who a father is, we have undermined our concept of God. Why is marriage under such a heavy attack today? Because God likens our relationship to him through the institution of marriage. One man, one woman, permanently. That's what God's idea was. This is what he wants, is one man, one woman, permanently. God likens himself to a jealous husband who is zealous for the love and affection of his wife. The bride of Christ, which is the church, you and I. God is jealous for us. He loves us with great zeal. Now, if a marriage is easily dissolved, if it's flippantly approached, then we undermine our view of what God actually wants for our relationship with him. Because he doesn't want it to end. He wants it to be permanent, to be a complete binding with us. 
In fact, you're going to find over the next several chapters, in many ways, he actually set up marriage to be a spiritual safeguard to keep us from sexual immorality. Now, the last mentioning is in verse 19, and it says, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is our memory verse. It's what we've been working on. So now you know a little bit of the context of where that memory verse is coming. Every single time, Paul has focused in more and more until he lands at the central issue of the chapter, and this is the central issue of his argument. This is where our memory verse comes from, and God has brought you at a price. And you and he, like a married couple, are now permanently one. He doesn't want a divorce. He does not. We are humble servants, and he is to be the one that is in charge, or at least he's supposed to be. This entire segment actually calls Christians to step up and to follow God's standards, to hold each other accountable. Now, we are to be held accountable to God's standards in a loving fashion, to redirect those who tightly cling to their sin back to him and his standards. Now, the part of this that actually keeps ringing in my head as I was reading through this, and maybe yours as well, is there's this part that says in verse 11, it said, and such were some of you but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. You see, the church has this reputation of what we are against. Everybody knows what the church is against. We have a reputation of being closed-minded, of being self-serving, of unloving, of uncaring. Part of the reason why it took me so long to become a Christian is because I knew churches that fit this bill, and you probably know church member or two that fits this bill as well. I think that this reputation comes from when we approach others, but we forget the crucial aspect, the concept of this verse, that we are to approach one another in sincerity and in truth, in sincerity and in truth, to realize that we have messed up, but there's a higher calling for each and every single one of us. Now, I heard it said this way once, and I really love the way that this is said. To say that we all sin, so don't judge me, is a really bad excuse for sin. I'll repeat that. To say we all sin, so don't judge me, is a really bad excuse for sin. Yes, we all sin, but the difference is that some people have repented and others have determined to continue to sin. The gospel's not about being perfect. It's about being convicted of our sin. The gospel is about being convicted of our sin and realizing where we stand before God, hopelessly guilty, and saying, I don't want to do this life anymore. I don't want to sin anymore. I want to be forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ and I want to live for God's glory. And that is what baptism communicates to God. So in a typical fashion, I'm going to ask you two closing questions today. Number one, what do your actions communicate to God? Are you the one that says that you believe but still find yourself allowing the old man to take control on a regular basis? What is it that needs to change in your life so that your words and your actions line up? Final question. How do you approach Christians who aren't following God's commands? How do you approach Christians who aren't following God's commands? Do you take the hands-off approach? Do you let them be? Let them figure their mess out? Not my problem, not my mess. Or do you in sincerity and truth try to come alongside them and point them towards Jesus? Maybe the real question is, do you know the people in this room well enough to understand where they struggle? Can you pray for them regularly? Do you know them well enough to be able to do so? 
uphold one another in sincerity and truth. Lovingly point one another toward him constantly. Be there for one another. He left us here together for a reason. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much. Hey, this is Pastor Jake. I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to these messages that we put online. I do pray that these are helpful for the times you just can't be with us in person. I want to remind you that this recording is never meant to substitute God's good plan for you to be in a community of faith where the Word of God is being preached and proclaimed. We are told by Scripture to gather together so that we each belong to a local body of believers where we are being shaped by being known by using each of our gifts and walking faithfully in God's Word. So thank you again so much for listening and growing with us. I hope you enjoyed today's message.